is good once again to be here to worship with you today. And today we're in Amos chapter 5. We're going to pick up in the middle of Amos chapter 5 where we left off last week at verse 18. I posted a or shared a friend's post earlier in the week uh, on Facebook that speaks to this. And it was on my heart as I was preparing and praying and, and seeking the Lord uh, concerning the direction of today's message. I have, as a pastor, I have officiated, I think is the word that's most often used in, in well over uh, a couple hundred funeral or memorial services over the, the 35 years or so that I've, I've served in the ministry. And I can't remember once, one service where I didn't have at least someone, and usually the majority of the people say, well, certainly she's in a better place, or he's in a better place. When we come to end of life, and there's that finality, we always desire, always want to have hope. We always want to believe. Regardless of what the scoundrel who is lying before us had done throughout their life, we want to believe that they're in a better place. The sad truth is that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that that is not always the case. And in fact, uh, he says in 7.13, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. The truth from God's word tells us that the majority of people who walk on this earth will miss Jesus. They will miss eternal life. They'll spend their eternity separated from God, not in a better place. In fact, at the end of, of that same little discussion, Jesus says, there's going to be religious people that come to me, people who are absolutely convinced because they know my name, because... I've got something going on here It's going to irritate me. Uh, because they know my name and they've done things in my name. They're convinced that because they're religious, that, that they're going to go to heaven, that they're going to have eternal life in my kingdom. And Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven on that day Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That is a sobering, scary truth. The majority, Jesus says, of those who walk on this earth will not see eternal life. And even many of those who are involved in church, who call on his name, who go through the motions of religion, will not experience eternal life. That, that ought to be a stern warning for every single one of us to check our own hearts. Amos addresses this very issue. 
as he's speaking to the Israelites who claim to be the people of God and because of their history and and even because of some of their religious practice, they're convinced that they're okay, that God is going to take care of them to the extent that they are looking forward to what they understood and referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, that phrase, day of the Lord, takes on uh, many implications as you work your way through Scripture. And in fact, as you move into the New Testament, the day of the Lord tends to point toward what we see as the return of Christ, whether it be his, his return in the clouds when he comes and we are raptured off the face of the earth, or whether the day of the Lord in the New Testament, I believe in some instances, refers to final judgment Regardless, and, and I think sometimes the day of the Lord refers to all of that encapsulated. In Amos's day, the day of the Lord was understood to be that day when the Lord would stand up for his people and would redeem them so that they would become a great nation again. He would defeat and devour all their enemies. The day of the Lord was rooted in the idea that because God was sovereign, that it would take him one day to deal with all of the enemies of Israel. And so many of the Israelites looked forward to, in fact, they all looked forward to the day of the Lord when the Lord was going to do his thing. And in particular, those who were living in this time, in Amos's time, were specifically focused on the Assyrian Empire, this great empire that had spread all across the known world and was a, an immediate threat to the Israelites at that point. And they, the, Israel, the, the Assyrian Empire was right on their doorstep, so to speak. And so the, the Israelites were looking forward to the day of the Lord, the Lord, the day that the Lord would deal with the Assyrians and that he would establish them as the great and mighty nation there in the promised land, and they would rule over all of the earth. That's what they look forward to. That's the context of Amos's woe here. Now, as we've walked through Amos, you'll hear often Amos, Amos's laments. Now, there's two different types of oracles, really, that you find in Amos. Those laments of what, uh, lamenting the, the sin and lamenting what God is about to do. In this case, it's a, the oracle is referred to as a, a woe oracle. Woe are you because God is about to deal with your issue. So read with me this text in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Amos writes, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Wow, wait a minute. Pause there for a second. We're looking forward to the day of the Lord. We're the Israelites. We're his people. We're the ones who he brought out of Egypt. We are the children of promise. Certainly, the day of the Lord is going to be a great day for us. God's going to provide for us. He's going to care for us. He's going to, he's going to fulfill all of these great visions and images for us. Amos says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. And he hurries home. He goes home and he rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake biting. Woe, won't the day of the Lord be darkness 
rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings or fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let the justice flow like the water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. House of Israel, was it sacrifices and grain offerings that you presented to me during the 40 years in the wilderness? But you have taken up Succoth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god. Images you have made for yourselves, so I will send you into exile beyond the Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. You cannot separate this woe article from things that Amos has already said to the children of Israel. Last week, we dug into a little bit some of what God had against them, uh, how, they, how they dealt with the poor and, and how they were unwilling to, to give justice, how they were calling right wrong and they were calling wrong right, and, and how they had separated themselves from truth. So you can't just take this out of context because that, that forms the, the foundation of what Amos has to say here. But Amos now is, is, he tells the Israelites, the day of the Lord is not going to be what you think it is. You look forward to the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord for you is going to be a sad surprise. Now the truth is that every single one of us is going to stand Naked before God with all of our life, all of our sin exposed, if it's not covered by the blood of Christ, all of us are going to stand before God at some point and give an account, right? Thankfully for those who truly have surrendered and have been covered by the blood of Christ, he stands as an advocate for us, Hebrews says. If you're not in a relationship with Christ, the day of the Lord will not be a day of celebration. In fact, it will be a sad day. And for many of the Israelites, though they were religious and though they had the religious pedigree, though they were descendants of Abraham, Scripture says that the day of the Lord for them was going to be a day of darkness, not a day of light. Some of us think that because of our pedigrees, because of our upbringing, or because of our, our attendance to a worship service, or, or because of giving, or whatever it happens to be, because of our particular actions, our gifts, our sacrifices, we believe that we're going to be okay to stand before God. But God consistently, even throughout the Old Testament, tells the people of Israel that their sacrifices are not enough and they're in for a sad surprise because you cannot do enough good deeds to erase your sin. And for those, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of terror. Now, I've been taught as a believer to look forward to the return of Christ. And I truly look forward to the return of Christ with somewhat of a heart. 
I don't know how to put it, that's a little bit hesitant. And let me tell you why the hesitancy. It's not because I don't have confidence in the Christ who died for me on a cross, who I confess and who I proclaim and who I preach every day. But I have friends and family members whom I pray for regularly that are lost. And if Jesus were to return this afternoon... I have friends and family members that would stand before the judgment of God exposed in their sin. And though I personally look forward to the return of Christ, I personally look forward to the the day when we'll be caught up together in the air with him and I will meet those of my loved ones who have gone before. I'm excited about that day personally. There's a bit of trepidation in my heart because there are many around me who think they're going to be okay. And that day is going to not only be a surprise, it's going to be a day of horror for them. And there's no escaping it. One of my favorite pictures in in the Old Testament, and certainly among the Old Testament prophets, is this this picture that Amos says, uh, that he gives us here. He says that the day of the Lord for some is going to be like, they're, they're, they're trying to escape the lion. So they turn away from the lion who's chasing them, about to devour them, and they run into a bear. And somehow they get away from the bear and they go home and they think they're okay and they lean up against the wall and they get bit by a snake. There's no escaping the judgment of God. It doesn't matter which way you turn, how far you run, how quick you are, how wise you are, how philosophical you are. There is no escaping the judgment of God. Even if you return to your own dwelling place and you seek to hide in your own home, there's no escaping the judgment of God. He sees you and he knows where you are. And for those Israelites who thought they were okay because of their religion, or because of their pedigree, or because of something in their history. He says, the day of the Lord is going to be a day of surprise and a day of terror that you cannot escape. What is it that has the Israelites so fooled that they think they're going to be okay? I believe it's something that has a lot in our culture and many in our churches also fooled that we think we're going to be okay. And it is a a shallow worship that disguises our sin. I laughed at yesterday. My daughter, Kelsey, mentioned something. She's working for a Houston Audubon Society, and she uh, loves her job. Absolutely is fascinated by by the job that God's blessed her with. And and she is... uh, she mentioned something. She, she's, they, they get a lot of donor requests because it's a 501c3 that's, you know, people love birds and they, they, they love giving into those, those kind of areas. She said they get a lot of requests for something that can have somebody's name put on it. And she said, what is it about rich people that they want to put their name on everything? And I got a kick out of that because I, I remember a professor at Southwestern talking about how, uh, Oftentimes, they would have people in church who would want to give, but they would want to give and have their name put on something. Maybe their name put on a building. Or, and then 
years later, in fact, after being here, Dennis Rattle remember this, some, some of you others might as well, we were at a church in, um, after Katrina, and I won't name the church, serving there, and I noticed that every window, every pew, every chair, and every room had a plaque and it was donated by so-and-so. And, and it was as though everybody that gave wanted people to know that it was me who gave. It was my gift. It was my money. And in fact, that wasn't even enough. So what they had done after that is everything that had been donated and given either in somebody's name or had their name put on something, then on the back wall of the sanctuary, they had a duplicate and they had plaques of the chairs were donated by, and they had a duplicate of those plaques so that there was no, no, no confusion about who gave what. And there was this, it was a shallowness. It was almost like a fakeness. Well, I'll give as long as I get, as long as I get recognition or as long as, as somehow my name gets attached to it. That's a sign of this kind of shallow worship. But listen to what, what Amos says as he speaks for the Lord in verse 21. I hate, I despise your feast. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. I'll have no regard for your fellowship offerings or fattened calves. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. God was sickened by the fact that those who claimed to be his people would come into his sanctuary or go to a place of worship and, and they would offer words of praise, words of thanksgiving. They would sing the songs but they had no intention of their heart. They had no intention at all of being changed from the inside. It wasn't a desire to be obedient. It was a desire to put on a show. They had big feast, but little faith. They had sacrifices with no surrender. They put on a great show, but there was no substance. God says if that's the kind of offering that you want to make to me, I don't want it. I don't need your grain. I don't need your fattened calves. I want your heart. To the extent that... that because the, the confusion for us is we tend to look at this and go, wait a minute, I thought the Old Testament is all about the sacrifices that God's people brought. No, the Old Testament is always all about God's people walking in a relationship with him by faith. The sacrificial system was a way for them to understand the, the, the depth of their sin and, and the need for a sacrifice that pointed to Christ coming in the future, the need for that Messiah to eventually come and be the one final sacrifice for their sin so that they could come with a humble heart and repent and walk before a holy God. 
As soon as you start thinking that you're enough, that your sacrifice is enough, your words are enough, your song is enough, that you're good enough to measure up so that God has to accept you, you've missed the entire point of the entire sacrificial system. And God points out, even in verse 25, it wasn't your grain and your sacrifices for the 40 years in the wilderness. I was providing you all of your food. It was about walking with me. And when we think that what we bring is enough to pull ourselves up so that we can measure up and meet God in some type of equal footing or at least stand before him in a way that he's required to accept us, we've missed the point. The Israelites should have known that. There's a, there's a famous story of their first king, King Saul, that I'm always reminded of when I, when I deal with this subject. Saul was told by Samuel... God's given you a, a, a job. Your job is to go deal with the Amalekites. Go deal with the Amalekites, kill every one of them, don't bring anything back. That's your job. He's going to give you strength. He's going to provide for you to defeat the enemy. You go take care of it. Saul goes to deal with the Amalekites and does not do what God told him to do. And Samuel, the prophet, is woken up by God in the middle of the night with a dream. And God tells Samuel, hey, Saul didn't mind me. Saul was disobedient. I need you to go deal with Saul. Samuel's like, where is he? I'll send you. He takes off walking and, and finds the direction that Saul had went. So Samuel, the prophet, goes to meet Saul, the king, on the road. And as he's going to meet Saul, he hears the bleeding of the sheep and goat and cattle and all of the choice animals. Now, Samuel knew that Saul wasn't supposed to bring anything back. And then verse 10 tells us the word of the Lord came to Samuel in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instruction. Well, Samuel gets up and he goes to confront Saul and when he's on the way, Scripture says, Samuel came to him and Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel says, What is the sound of sheep and goats and cattle that I hear? Listen carefully to Saul's words. Saul answered, The troops, the troops brought them back from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and goats and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. So do you hear what he's saying? It's not my fault. They did it. And they brought them back to, to make a sacrifice to your God. Wait a minute, Saul. I thought he was your God too. I thought he's the one who placed you in the position of being a king. What I skipped over was before Samuel met Saul on the road, before Saul headed to, to Gilgal where Samuel met him, Saul had stopped off at another town and built a shrine to himself. And so the, the story continues when, when he says, but we destroyed the rest. I love what the prophet does. The prophet said, stop it. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me. He replied, Samuel concluded, although you once considered yourself small 
Haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what is evil in the Lord's sight? Saul argued with him, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, and the best of what is set apart for destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel's reply to Saul rings in my ears and in my heart, and I hope it does yours. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in you obeying the Lord. Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And then he goes on to accuse, in fact, define what Saul had just done as rebellion. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul knew what he was supposed to do, and he chose to come up with a better plan than what God had in his mind. And as soon as we step away from obedience to do it our way, we put ourselves in the position of lordship. We now are saying, my plan's better than God's plan. My way is better than his way. Yeah, Lord, I know you told me to go do it this way. And you told me to, to not bring back any of, those, uh, any of those sheep or cattle or goats or any of those, but I've got a better plan. I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to sacrifice them to you. So now who's in charge, the Lord or Saul? And Samuel looks at him, and he says, because you're disobedient, the Lord has rejected you. The Israelites in Amos' day, had decided that we're good with the sacrifices. They were wealthy. The, the Israelite nation was at a, at a position of, of peace, and, and they were at a position of wealth. We've seen that in Amos already. We'll see it more uh, expressed further in Amos as we go forward. Uh, they were living in big homes. Many of the wealthy had second homes. Uh, they were in a position of, of comfort. And so they've decided, you know what? I don't mind giving my sacrifices and giving my offerings. I'm going to keep giving. I just don't want to be obedient. When we do that, we put ourselves in the position of the Lord. We're saying, I know better than he does. And though our, we may be coming in worship and we may be making sacrifices, our sacrifices and our shallow, hollow worship disguises the sin of our hearts that we don't want to obey him. In fact, what it really boiled down to is not what they did on their Saturday 
of worship, but it's what they did the other six days of the week that defined who they were. And we've seen that in Amos, and we'll see it some more. They, they, they live their life for the goods of this world. They live their life for comfort and ease. They, they fill their life with entertainment, pursuing their own passions most of the week. And then they would set aside a little bit of time for God and say, oh, I'm going to come worship him, and I'm going to bring my sacrifice, and I'm good. And it's to that kind of heart that God says, look, obedience is better than sacrifice. I don't want your offerings. I want you. I don't need your cash. I want your heart. True worship is when we come and we lay down everything before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Here's my, my, my finances. Here's my family. Here's my home. Here's all of the gifts that you've given me. Lord, do with them as you please. In fact, Lord, as you lead me, uh, help me to use them for your glory. Lord, here's my past stained with all of the sin and all of my shortcomings and all of my bad decisions, here's my past. Lord, you take my past and do with it as you please. Use it for your glory. Lord, here's my plans. Here's my future. Here's, here's what I look forward to the next 30 years or 40 years or 50 years of my life. Here's, here's my plans for my future. Lord, I lay them all down before you. It's not about me. It's about you. You show me where you want me to go. You teach me what you want me to know. You guide me in your path. Lord, I'm yours. That's the difference between surrender and sacrifice. That's the difference between obedience and offering. Offerings aren't bad when offerings come with the right heart. But what God desires is obedience. What he desires is surrender. Think about the words for just a moment. Lord, I've got this stuff, and I'm going to sacrifice it. I'm going to make a, a, a huge sacrifice by giving my tithe over to you. I'm going to give my 10%. And what a sacrifice that is for me to give up that that's mine to you. Do you hear the, the me in that? As opposed to someone who comes and says, Lord, you, you have blessed me with everything. You've blessed me with everything. And out of obedience to you, You've asked me to set aside this part for your kingdom use. So here you go, Lord. Here's my tithe. And Lord, you, you've shown me that, that, that you want me to give above and beyond. And so, Lord, here's my, the, the gifts that you've asked for. Lord, thank you for all that you've blessed me with. Thank you for all that you've provided because it's all yours. You're the Lord. I'm not in charge of any of it in the first place. There's a difference, a marked difference in the attitude of our hearts between 
offerings and obedience, between surrender and sacrifice. As soon as we think that we're making a great sacrifice, we've, we've made it about us as though we think everything belongs to us. When we're surrendered before the Lord, it's all for him anyway in the first place. He simply gets to do with it as he pleases. And, you know, for most of us, God abundantly, overwhelmingly continues to bless us even when we don't deserve it. That's out of his love for us as the father that he is who cares for his sheep. God has called us to surrender our hearts fully to the Lord. But whether or not we're surrendered to him is going to be put on display. It's going to be revealed not by what we do on Sunday or on Easter or on a special holiday. Where our heart truly is, whether we are surrendered to the Lord or whether we're simply offering momentary sacrifices, is going to be revealed by what we do day by day by day. How we walk. Is our worship reflected in our, in, in our time with him on Tuesday and Thursday? Or do we only reflect worship in our time with him as we set it aside for an hour to a week? The Israelites at this point were living away from God the rest of the week, and they were bringing their offerings and their sacrifices in hopes that they would be okay before a holy God. And God says, if that's your attitude, I don't even want it. It stinks. I won't have anything to do with it. To truly... Walk in a relationship with God requires that we lay it all down and that we surrender it all before him. There's an old uh, hymn that used to be, uh, I don't know how many times we've sung it as invitation hymns here. I've heard it at other places uh, called I Surrender All. And the challenge for me, every time I hear that hymn or I sing those words, is I have, to, I have this check in my own heart. Can I sing that with integrity? Can I be completely honest when I look to the Lord, whether I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning the Christ who, who's dying on the cross for me or the Jesus is, who rose up out of the grave or maybe the, the Lord who's going to return one day. In the day of the Lord that I look forward to, can I truly look to him and say, Jesus, Lord, I surrender all. There's always a check in my heart when I sing that song. Because I'm afraid far too often, even though the word all comes out of my lips, what I'm thinking is some. God desires that we lay our lives down and surrender all. Now, he is a loving, benevolent God who doesn't strip you of all of your food. <laughs> and leave you destitute and homeless. In fact, he's the exact opposite. He provides for his children in a way that's miraculous. But the Lord desires your whole heart. And the problem is, what I've described is practically impossible. It's, it's like Jesus when he said, you, you've got to 
be like the camel who goes through the eye of the needle and the disciples say, that's impossible. And Jesus says, well, with men it is, but with God it's not. It is absolutely impossible for me to stand before a holy God and have a relationship with a holy God because I'm not holy. It's impossible for me to do that in my own strength. But with God, it's not. It's impossible for me to raise myself up enough that I deserve eternal life, that I can go to heaven. That's impossible for me to accomplish. But it was not impossible for the God of glory to step out of heaven, to be born of a virgin, to walk on this earth, to die on a cross and shed his blood for my sin, that I could have hope of eternal life. What is impossible for you and I to accomplish, what was impossible for the Israelites, is not impossible for God. And there we come again to a place where we can't do it. No matter our sacrifice, no matter our offerings, no matter how much effort we exert, we can't. Our only hope is to lay our lives down before God and say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. That is the true heart of worship that the Israelites were missing and that we far too often miss when we go through the motions of religion. I want to encourage you as you, as you take away from this message today, you, you take that heart and you somehow allow God to examine your heart. Ask the questions first, Lord, am I truly yours? Do I truly know you? Do you truly know me? Or have I just been going through religious motions? Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 is scary. When Jesus can, can say, there's going to come a time when I'm going to look at people who say, they preached in my name. And they cast out demons in my name. And they did miracles in my name. And he said, I'm going to have to look at them and say, I never knew you. That's scary. So pause today. Examine your heart and say, Lord, am I yours? Do you know me? Have, have I truly put my faith and, and trust in you that I'm your child? Because once that happens, the rest is ancillary. That's where the sacrifice, that's where the surrender has to come first. And then as believers, ask yourself, have I gotten into a pattern of taking God for granted? Have I no longer come with a whole heart to worship? Am I, Lord, have I settled back into a religion? And am I missing what it is that you ask of me? You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.